How will AI shape society? And how will society shape AI? AI for Society Dialogues explores the work of researchers from the University of Alberta, a global leader in artificial intelligence research. This season, AI for Society partners with Precision Health to learn more about the ways in which AI technologies are shaping the future of healthcare and the exciting advances being made in digital health. It might be surprising to learn that women are disproportionately affected by heart failure after heart attacks and that women have been underrepresented in clinical trials, which hinders our ability to really understand the impacts some medications have on women. Dr. Padma Kaul is working to change this. Dr. Call is an epidemiologist and a professor in the Department of Medicine in the Faculty of Medicine and Dentistry at the University of Alberta. She is also the co-director of the Canadian Vigor Centre. She holds the Canadian Institutes of Health Research Sex and Gender Science Chair in Diabetes and the Heart and Stroke Chair in Cardiovascular Research. And she joins me today on AI for Society Dialogues. Dr. Call, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Since this podcast is part of the AI for Society Signature Research Area in partnership with Precision Health, I'm asking all of our guests, what does artificial intelligence mean to you in general and in the context of healthcare? Well, that's a great question. Um, from an epidemiology perspective, I think um, for me, artificial intelligence is a tool that we would use to uh, monitor the health of uh, the health of a population uh, for surveillance purposes uh, and to provide better clinical decision-making tools to our clinical colleagues who are in the trenches looking after patients. Well, you're a busy working mom uh, with kids and I, I've just met your rambunctious golden retriever. Tell me about some of the challenges that that brings uh, to your life and, and, and your work. Yes, so Cossack is actually a golden doodle, so only part retriever, <laughs> part poodle, um, and he is rambunctious. Uh, he's the latest addition, though he is three years old. To our family, I have two daughters who are in, uh, in their teen years, so you can imagine how much drama uh, goes on in our family. So uh, it's been actually quite interesting. I... Uh, juggling, as I'm sure it's common to many women or majority of women, uh, juggling home life and uh, work life, especially in these COVID times, has been quite a challenge. It's it's great to have something that you really like doing, which which I do. That does sound very challenging. And I, I understand that you had an additional challenge uh, not too long ago and that you broke your finger as well. Tell us a story about that. <laughs> uh, well, therein lies a whole story. How much time have you got? <laughs> as my colleagues have, uh, all my colleagues who are going to listen to this podcast are going to roll their eyes because I have milked this event <laughs> for their sympathy for a long time. Uh, but actually, I broke my finger because of the dog. He was walking saw another dog and decided to take my finger it was wrapped around his leash and it broke and it's been a couple of years but it still hurts so you know the things you do for your dogs so 
I love these personal stories. It really kind of gives us a sense of who the person is behind the research. <laughs> we are going to talk about the research. But first, let's talk a bit about how you even got into this area. So you're an epidemiologist. And I, I feel like in the last year or so, we've all become a little bit more familiar with what is an epidemiologist. <laughs> But your work is particularly in this area of cardiovascular issues. And I'm just wondering, how did you become um, interested in this area of study? Yeah, I have actually quite an eclectic background. I have a background, bachelor's in business and then a master's in public policy analysis, um, you know, for governments and how they make policy decisions. Uh, and then a PhD in epidemiology. So I kind of come from a very different kind of uh, lens that I look at data. I started in the States working for a consortium of academic medical centers who wanted to benchmark performance, um, how they were doing in treating their parent patients. And so that kind of translated into a whole interest in epidemiology. And the focus of heart uh, on heart disease was more personal. And then it has evolved into, you know, different areas such as maternal child health. So bit uh, you could, if you were not being kind to me, call me a jack of all trades or, you know, you could say just a diverse <laughs> uh, person <laughs> with diverse interests. So. I love that. I actually, I have an undergrad in business as well and um, and then wound up doing an arts degree. But I'm, I'm curious to know, um, are you still interested in policy issues? You did the master's and with a focus on policy, does that still play into some of your interests as well? Absolutely. You know, the reason for providing evidence and using data is to make better informed choices, whether that's your uh, my clinical colleagues or whether it's policymakers, you know, that's the whole point of doing doing this kind of research. I'm not sure that we always connect with the policymakers, but that would be the utopia, like, you know, where people who are making the decisions, the policy decisions, use our data and use the evidence that we are putting forward. No, I, I agree with that. Um, you also mentioned kind of this personal side as well. And, and you've said that your interest in this field is personal. And obviously, as a woman, a mother, and I also in doing my research, um, found that your father had suffered from cardiovascular disease. How important do you think it is for researchers to have some level of personal connection or interest in their area of study? Do you think that that is important? It's not necess necessary, but I think it's really great if you can. There is all this literature about patients becoming engaged in research. You know, to have a personal stake in the research that you do, I think really is a huge motivator. So to the extent that you can find something that you're really invested in um, as a research area does help. And you're right, the cardiovascular uh, area was because there was a family history of heart disease. And, you know, when I do my maternal child health research, I feel as if I'm on, you know, I'm a specialist having been through it two times. <laughs> I know exactly what I'm talking about when I ask that question. <laughs> In fact, the reason uh, I got into it was because I had so many questions during my pregnancy that uh, my doctor said, well, we don't know the answers. If you want the answers, write a grant and figure it out. <laughs> so, <laughs> so here I am doing that. <laughs> oh, I love that. So you did, you did, you wrote a grant and now you're figuring it out. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Well, let's talk a bit more about women's health because I, I think it's um, it's certainly shocking uh, to myself to hear that there hasn't necessarily been um, as many clinical um, studies or focus on women specifically, and that women also have higher rates of heart failure and mortality after heart attacks than men. So if you could maybe talk to us a little bit about the need for more epidemiological studies and more research in general focused on women, what does it really look like? As you mentioned in the introduction, it is true, and we have evidence to show that women are, like fewer women tend to be enrolled in clinical trials. And for sure, like one of the major exclusion criteria for any clinical trial in cardiology is pregnancy. So we don't tend to enroll pregnant women. And so, you know, the evidence from these trials are applied across the board. So my colleagues and I have been working, you know, trying to increase enrollment in clinical trials and also just increase awareness. You know, randomized clinical trials offer the best level of evidence uh, for any new therapies or treatment strategies. Unfortunately, we know historically that women are underrepresented in RCTs or clinical trials. In the absence of that, uh, observational studies are the next highest level of evidence that we can have. And so when we want to see differences in how men and women are, you know, what kind of interventions they have, what kind of outcomes they have, you know, the kind of research that I do offers the best level because uh, of evidence, because we're looking at it at a population level. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering, I mean, I'm, I'm almost guessing that women and in particular pregnant women have been excluded from these trials as an effort to protect them. Is that, is that an accurate assumption or why, have, why is, are there so few trials involving women? To exclude pregnant women, that might be the protection factor coming into play. But the underrepresentation of women in general cardiology trials is a limitation. I think there's been some research to suggest that because cardiology has been a male-dominated field, that maybe male physicians are more likely to enroll male patients. There is literature to suggest that when there is a greater diversity and more female, as women have become represent a bigger part of cardiology clinical care, there is an increase in the women who are being enrolled into these clinical trials. So I think that we, we are seeing a change, uh, but historically they have been underrepresented. But I think now everyone is aware that that is something that needs to be fixed. And I think more recent trials are trying their best to enroll an equal number, or at least in terms of the prevalence of the disease. So it is true that uh, men have a higher, like a higher proportion of uh, patients with cardiovascular disease are men. So there will be some of that, but so that there's not a great imbalance in recruitment. Right. I mean, it leads me to wonder about other underrepresented uh, groups when it comes to either research or clinical studies in particular. What other groups do you feel are underrepresented in epidemiological and clinical studies? In the kind of epi studies that I do, we take all comers. And in fact, we want to account for 
all segments of society. But if you look at uh, prospective trials or studies that enroll, um, there may be a challenge to recruit from um, you know, rural patients or certain ethnic communities, um, um, you know, or racial groups. So those are all the challenges. But the good thing is that we're all aware of these and we are actively trying to make sure that we make the extra effort to enroll patients from these specific segments of the population. Yeah, no, it's great that there's a lot more awareness now of uh of all of these issues. I'm wondering about just maybe even understanding the difference between an epidemiological study and a clinical study, if you could just briefly explain what what the differences are between those two things. You know, I mean, generally, like a randomized clinical trial, which is an experiment that you set up, where we are trying to examine the impact of a certain therapy or a treatment or an intervention, and in order to uh, uh, to see the effect of that treatment, you randomize patients into two groups. You know, preferably they're blinded to treatment, so both think that they're getting the treatment and uh, or they're being treated exactly identically and then you see the effect in the two groups and then you can say that this is as a result of um, the treatment that you have uh, that is different between the two groups. Uh, So the randomization works to uh, make the make sure ensure that your cap Uh, comparing apples to apples, not only in the things that you observe and you measure, but also things that you have not measured, you know, so because it's just a random assignment of treatment groups. So that's what I call when I say it's a randomized clinical trial. When I talk about an epidemiological uh, study, I mean, you can use any kinds of data for epidemiology, you know, within a clinical trial, you can look at the associations, the epidemiology of a disease. But when I'm talking about epidemiological studies that I do, it is population health, population-based. So for example, some of our studies are on all patients with a certain kind of cardiovascular disease. So say heart failure in Alberta. And this would, then we don't, they're not select populations. These are everyone. And it's a much broader study design. And you can have these epi studies that are prospective in nature, or you can do retrospective. That is very helpful. And I think for those of us who are not familiar with how medical research is conducted, it really just helps set the stage uh, for understanding the differences. Um, I do want to talk a bit more about some work that you're involved with, a a multi-province study that will look at the impacts of prescription drugs on pregnancy, both the mothers and children. Specifically, can you tell us a little bit more about that study and what kind of data you're looking at? Yes. So this is a really exciting study. But can I ask you whether you realize, if I asked you to guess what proportion of women who are pregnant end up taking a prescription medication during their pregnancy, what would be your guess? 
Oh my, that's a that's a very challenging question. Um, I'm going to say I'm going to guess a fairly no, low number. I'm going to say fifteen percent. <laughs> Don't you think that's what I would have guessed before we started looking at the data? But the, here's the interesting point: we have found that over two thirds of the women who are pregnant end up taking a prescription medication during pregnancy. Really? And you know, you would say. But isn't the general consensus try not to take any drugs? You know, just historically, that's what we it's been dinned into our heads. Yeah. One of the reasons, and I was really surprised to find this as well, but one of the reasons I think is because, well, women are getting older, they're delaying childbirth, and um, as a result, many of them may have pre-existing conditions before pregnancy for which they are taking medications. So that's part of the reason. The other part of the reason is, uh, you know, the first trimester, many of the women may not even realize that they are pregnant and therefore take some prescription medication not knowing that they're pregnant. But it, this is a bigger challenge than I thought it was. Like it's more prevalent than I thought it was. So what we're doing as a as part of this CAMCO study, so that's called the Canadian Mother and Child Cohort Study, uh, we're bringing in um, multiple provinces in Canada to... Uh, to bringing together pregnancy birth cohorts from these provinces. And uh, we're going to look at the exposure of prescription medications during pregnancy on the long-term health of the mother as well as of the baby. That sounds amazing. When you say long-term, can you paint a picture of how long-term are we talking? Is this like five, 10 years? <laughs> Yeah, you know, the thing is, the average age of women who are pregnant in Alberta, when we look over the last few decades, it's about 26, 27 years. So these are young women. But the cohorts we are creating are historical. So, for example, I think Quebec has the oldest cohort that starts um, that may be over 20 years old. So like starting in the early uh, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, when their uh, cohort has started. In Alberta, we can uh, link the mothers and babies starting in, say, 2005. And we're following them up, you know, so we'll have 15 years of follow up. Uh, so median about 10 to 12 years, some younger cohorts, some older. So quite a long time. And the plan is to build this foundation for this research so that, uh, you know, it can continue into the future. So we set up the infrastructure. And then I'm hoping that the next generation of researchers will continue this research and have this resource. I'm actually very curious about how these long-term studies are actually conducted and, and also who the team of people are that you're working with, because it's multi-province, but also over such a long period of time. So I'm just trying to imagine the group of people involved in doing that work. Can you paint a bit of a picture about how these studies work? Uh, I'll talk first about the provincial collaborators, and we collaborate extensively with Alberta Health the Ministry of Health and Alberta Health Services, the provider of services. Um, and that's to give us 
so they are the custodians of the data that we will use. So Alberta Health, as the Ministry of Health, has uh, you know the health records, the population health records. And so what we have done is requested those data and they release to us after de-identifying the patient data. So what I mean is that from these data, we cannot identify a patient like Mrs. X. We cannot identify her. Uh, We have an ID that we can't ever identify individual patients, but we do, we, it's a scrambled ID that follows this patient over time. So we work with the ministry to have access to these data for our research. Uh, and each province, because health is a provincial, um, is under provincial um, jurisdiction, each province is its own keeper of these records. So each, there's a PI or principal investigator from each province who's going to be working with their own provincial data. And then we will come together with the results in an aggregate form. Yeah, that is that is super interesting and and a great segue into the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is data. And uh, because we are talking about um, some of the new technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning, and you're talking about data over the long term and all over large populations, I'm curious to know how these uh, tools are being used in the context of your research. Excellent question. And, you know, it's uh, still in its, I won't say infancy, but maybe toddlerhood, uh, the use of AI and ML, which is machine learning, to uh, and applying them to the kind of epidemiological research we are doing. Um, what I can tell you is we're in the era of big data. So there are 40 to 50,000 deliveries in Alberta alone per year. By the time you add in information about their hospitalizations, uh, what kind of lab tests, pregnant women are the most studied, like remember you have to take so many lab tests and so many visits to the doctor, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, so there are so many data points that are collected during pregnancy and then when we follow pregnant women downstream and also follow the babies we're collecting massive amounts of data on these patients so traditionally we've used a standard statistical techniques but those require us to kind of simplify the data for analyses but we're hoping that through machine learning, we can employ these new techniques um, and kind of see whether the machines recognize some patterns that we have missed. So that's the kind of work we're doing in the in the pregnancy birth area. But on the cardiovascular end, there's really exciting stuff because um, we're using traditional diagnostic tools like ECGs, you know, the electrocardiogram, that is uh, collected on most patients who walk through an emergency department or a hospital in the in the province. And we are trying to see whether um, what information it can it can provide with respect to the diagnosis and prognosis of 
cardiovascular disease. Very interesting. I, I like your characterization of um, AI and ML being in the toddler phase. I, I think that's a really interesting way of, of thinking about it. And I'm kind of wondering about um, who is actually doing this machine learning work? Do you work with um, computer scientists on your team? Do you have a collaboration? Are you doing some of this? What, what does that look like on a on kind of a daily basis for you? So my role is entirely as a bridge among uh, specialists. So I have clinical colleagues who give me advice on what they experience and what kind of questions they face in practice. And I have data scientists, colleagues who are computer scientists who uh, work with the data and the machine learning. Of course, we we have a team of biostatisticians who know the data backwards and forwards. And really, it's exciting to be a part of this team that uh, it's like that old cartoon of the elephant and everyone seeing a different aspect. But it's really kind of interesting to bring them all together and work towards, you know, trying to answer the important questions that would, you know, really help. Uh, what we hope for is help in, um, in clinical practice. Um, so yes, to, to answer the short answer to your question is yes, we have data scientists on our team. We have biostatisticians on our team. We have clinical, um, you know, clinicians on our team and we work with all of them. That's really interesting just to hear you describe the team and, and um, the people I, I'm talking to this season uh, on the podcast as we explore the intersection of AI and medicine, it's becoming more and more um, prevalent, I think, to have these very interdisciplinary teams so that we can take advantage of some of these great tools and apply them to, to the domains at hand. Um, so yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about your team. Um, you also talked about the responsible um, collection and use of data, how you um, uh, take care to anonymize data and, and use data in an aggregate. Thinking a little bit more about some of the ethical issues when it comes to data collection and, and use of data to advance research in medicine, I know that there can be you know, concerns about um, using data that way. Where do you stand on some of these ethical issues when it comes to using data? Yeah, I might be a little biased. I do recognize, of course, privacy is a huge issue and um, we do not want uh, health data to, you know, I think that they, they need to follow strict privacy guidelines. However, it's also a public health good here in Canada, especially. And uh, as long as we can ensure that patients' privacy is secure, and that is done, like as I mentioned, these are de-identified data that we work with. I think it's a, it's a, we we are trying to really convert data that is collected at every interaction with the healthcare system and trying to convert it into knowledge. You know, we're, we're trying to make it useful, useful knowledge and providing it in the hands to better the healthcare system. I, I'm sure you've heard this phrase of a learning healthcare system where we can take the data that the healthcare system is generating and kind of synthesizing it and providing it back to the people who can use it most efficiently. And I think 
uh, as long as we work in this in this um, within a framework, make, ensuring privacy for the patients, and then also you know working with the same rules that we're never going to release individual patient level data, um, all those kinds of things, or even a small cell. You know, like we are not even if it's a small if it's a, if it comes down to a small group of patients, we are not going to release that kind of information. But it's just an aggregate form. Uh, the data don't travel. They're not released to uh, anyone outside of Alberta. They're in a secure platform. So all our data are on secure servers in the University of Alberta behind secure uh, firewalls. You know, we're taking all those steps. Um, and if those steps are taken and we get all the necessary ethics approvals from the universities, it would be a shame not to have access to the data. I mean, if you think about it, COVID is a great example. Like, you know, the whole world has come together to work on one problem and what great strides you can make. I mean, even like, you know, we've formed collaborations with uh, colleagues across Canada looking at COVID and its impact on the healthcare system. Uh, and for all those kinds of collaborations, data is really critical. And as long as we are responsible users, I think it would be a shame not to have access to this fantastic wealth of information. Yeah, it's it's really interesting when you think about data, because we started our, our conversation talking about how there hasn't been enough good data collected about women and, and certain populations. And so when you're not represented through the data, uh, a lot of times you're, you're either not represented at all or misrepresented. So it's this interesting balance, as I hear you describe uh, the need for gathering the right data, and then also, of course, the need to protect it and use it responsibly. And it sounds like a lot of, of care has been taken in that. I have one more question about data, and that's just with respect to our healthcare system here in Alberta, where we have a single healthcare system. That's not the case um, with all the provinces, and I know that you're involved in multi-province work across Canada. Um, has that been an advantage for us? Has it been uh, either in terms of the quality of the data or getting access to the data? Um, has that been a benefit in having a single healthcare system like we have here in Alberta? Oh, totally. It's been a huge advantage. And I think, uh, you know, when I talk to my colleagues across Canada from the other provinces, I think Alberta data is seen, they look at our data with great envy because, you know, we have been able, because of the centralized system of care delivery, we have been able to link in data on prescription medications or laboratory tests that none of the other provinces have, uh, you know, either they're just getting access or, you know, don't have access to. Uh, so I feel incredibly lucky to be working um, within the Alberta healthcare system and having access to the data that we have. I would say we're on par with some of the Scandinavian countries, which are generally seen as the leaders of, you know, population health and how they collect information about uh, people, um, you know, for, for all the entire population. So I would say that Alberta's data resources uh, rival them. 
Yeah, that that would have been my guess, but it's it's interesting to hear you confirm that, and um, and just knowing that when you have that you know great rich source of data, it does allow you to do a lot more with it. Thinking about kind of the the technologies again, what do you consider the most promising technologies in the work that you do? Well, I mean, for sure, uh, I would still say that, uh, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning is one of the the newer tools that we're using for analysis. The jury is still out in the field that I'm in. And so we are uh, as to what incremental value these tools will provide. Uh, But we're hopeful. That's why we're working in this area. Uh, so stay tuned. <laughs> I'll see you in another year. Um, and in terms of other technology, I, you know, we want to measure everything. Like we want to know how people are feeling. Uh, we want, so is that through social media? Like, can we link data from social media to kind of get a sense of how hopeful or depressed or unhappy the population is feeling? Uh, linking data from wearable technologies, you know, my Apple Watch and my Fitbit, can we link in with the health data? Um, so th- th- there's all that kind of information, more and more uh, data that we can capture at the granular level. But then there is uh, also, I think it would be fabulous to expand, uh, expand the examination of uh, other jurisdictions on health. So if you think about environment, like, you know, are people uh, more likely to present to an emergency department with chest pain if there's if there are wildfires going on? Like, you know, air pollution. Are we more likely to feel worse when it's minus 40? I mean, yes, but, you know, does it really impact how how like patient, how does it impact patients with heart failure? How does the temperature impact? Um, so the intersection of environment and health. And then, of course, you know, things like the built environment, uh, you know, our children who live in neighborhoods with a higher walkability score, are they less likely to be obese? I mean, sky is the limit on um, on the questions that are there for us to answer. And, you know, we're just it goes on and on. So I don't think there's going to be a dearth of uh, questions to answer. Uh, And I think we'll have niftier tools like machine learning to help us answer those kinds of questions. Those are very interesting questions. And especially as we move into a world where we're impacted more and more uh, by climate change, and we're seeing, obviously, we've seen a lot of evidence of that this summer with the whole towns um, burning to the ground, sadly, and other kind of adverse uh, effects uh, of weather like that. Um, it, the, the questions that you're raising become increasingly important. When, when you think about artificial intelligence, are, do you have any sense of what would need to happen for it to move beyond that toddler phase? Like what are what would be some indicators for you that it's kind of moving into a phase where it's, it's more, I, I don't know, mature, let's say, or more perhaps more useful? So what I would like to see is first to do the science to show that it helps, right? Like that it builds us better mousetraps or it builds us, gives us better tools. That's where we are right now in the research that we are doing. 
is to build algorithms, build prediction models using machine learning. What the next step I see is once we have those is to then do implementation science, is to say, okay, give these tools to people um, uh, in practice and then measure whether that improves or are the tools that we are building effective. So I see that as the next big phase of where we are. And once we can demonstrate that consistently, I think that's when you are going to get buy-in. Yeah. I think we're all at the point where we think this is a good idea. We just need to... (laughs) convinced (laughs) and I think uh we're there we're 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 hopefully getting there yeah yeah that totally makes sense to me um we're just about to wrap up this has been a fascinating conversation my last question is um what's on the horizon for you what do you have planned next women and heart disease continue to be my biggest focus uh, I wonder why, but, uh, you know, and I had historically worked in older patients who develop heart disease. And uh, especially among women, I had the feeling that I, you, we need to, you know, find women at a, at a more proximal point who are at high risk of developing disease and identify them and then provide uh, inter- intervene at an earlier stage so that they don't end up having worse outcomes. And so that led me to this whole pregnancy area, the research. And if we can find uh, the pregnancy offers a window to the future health of the mother. So if women have diabetes during pregnancy or if they have hypertension during pregnancy, we know that these are at high ri- these women are at high risk of cardiovascular outcomes. So I want to do more research into that to see how uh, we can identify these high-risk men- women and what interventions we can develop so that uh, we can prevent downstream complications. Well, that's fantastic. Um, Dr. Call, I just want to say thank you so much for being here on the podcast today and for sharing your story and your research with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. AI for Society Dialogues is a co-production between AI for Society and Precision Health, two signature research areas at the University of Alberta. Find out more about AI for Society at AIforsociety.ca and Precision Health on the University of Alberta website. You can find out more about me, Katrina Ingram, at ethicallyalignedai.com. This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homelands of First Nations and Métis peoples. Our technical producer is Corey Stroder, and our theme music is Seeing the Future by Dexter Britton. Special thanks to Callie Vitella for research and production support. Stay connected to AI for Society. Sign up for our newsletter at AIforsociety.ca.